Hey everybody, you're listening to the Built on Web3 podcast, your on-ramp into the world of Web3. On this show, we chat with product leaders, builders, content creators, and business owners about how they're implementing Web3 strategies into their businesses. I hope you learned something new and enjoy today's episode. All right, Isaac, we're super happy to have you here today. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's a great opportunity to, to talk with you too. For sure. Love nerding out about Web3. <laughs> always, always. Before we dive into kind of what you're working on and at Agave, um, let's go back before you got into Web3. Uh, what were you working on then and, and how'd you get into it? Yeah, before Web3, um, I was into software engineering. So uh, what, what got me into it was I had just graduated from, from U of M, University of Michigan. And I moved out to uh, San Diego for work at the time. And um, yeah, it, it, everything was shut down because of the pandemic. So I spent a lot, of, a lot of time reading and working on side projects. And at the time I was reading computer networking, a top-down approach. Um, and in there, it has a section on, on peer-to-peer architectures. And one of the things that I was really interested in was BitTorrent and how they mm-hmm. incentivized the file sharing and data distribution. Um, and they were using a tit-for-tat incentivization mechanism within there. Um, and at the same time, I was running a lot because gyms were, were closed and I was listening to the, the Bitcoin uh, standard on audiobook. And those two things kind of clicked together. And I was like, oh, oh my gosh, this is what Ethereum is. It's you know an incentivized way to have a group of people um, in a peer-to-peer network and contribute their compute power to the system. And once that kind of clicked for me, I, I dove right in. I started uh, doing some side projects into smart contract development and doing a lot of reading in uh, smart contract development and also like the fundamentals of, of blockchain. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, that's, that's a, a perfect explanation of what Ethereum is. I love that. Um, and, you know, the those of us who are around, we all remember BitTorrent. <laughs> find all our movies and our songs. <laughs> we had it all. It was like the the cedars. Yeah, and the leechers, I was a leecher. Right? <laughs> I was definitely a leecher too. I definitely yeah. did not contribute to that network. <laughs> no. Um, so yeah, talk to us about some of those side projects. What? Um, where did you start? So you're in this new world. You're like, oh my gosh, this is really cool. What was kind of the first thing that you decided to to hack around with? Yeah, it, it was just simple things on on the test net. So just writing smart contracts that would um, do like auctions, and it, it was just never released or, or shown to anyone, but it was just like for my own amusement and for my own learning. Um, so it was just uh, simple projects like that, just to like get a better understanding of how to actually program these smart contracts and, um, and the entire process of, of shipping these, because it's, it's definitely a paradigm shift from, from normal, uh, from normal programming, because, you know, the first time you deploy a smart contract, you're like, Oh, I, I, I can't update this. Right, you're like it's it's shipped. It's uh, it's a it's a product now. Um, so so that's a, definitely a, a paradigm shift. And and there's a few others um, in there that that I wanted to get familiar with and actually understand before I jumped into to any real project. So it's it's mostly just uh, side projects for for learning and understanding. Nice. Yeah, how how accessible is smart contract development for? Like, like what level of experience do you think people have to have? Um, is it something that you can just maybe pick up in a weekend and try to hack around and stuff? Or do you have to have a pretty deep knowledge of software engineering? Yeah, I would say it, it depends on what level you're, 
you're doing it too. Obviously, there's a lot of hacks in the ecosystem right now. So that worries a lot of people because um, one of the things you do see is that there's um, there's a lack of experience in the industry right now, it seems, because it, it is such a new technology. You don't have the people who have been programming in Solidity and these other languages for for 10 years now, like you do when you look at people who have been programming in C++ and Java. Um, so you don't have these uh, people with decades of experience and um, also, you know, those people with decades of experience, they were passed on knowledge from mentors, you know, and, um, that that's lacking right now. So that there are a lot of concerns of lack of experience, but I think it's something where, you know, if you're dedicated towards anything and you, you want to learn anything, um, you can jump right into it and do it. I, I, I'm a firm believer in that, that there isn't like a, like a traditional academic route isn't necessary for a lot of the things. And, um, that, that's how I jumped into the space was just, just reading books. And um, actually uh, it was, I don't know if you're familiar with the O'Reilly database. Um, yeah, I, I love that. So I'm always reading books on there and that's how I've learned, um, a lot of the stuff I have about smart contract development and blockchain, because, um, I think the first book I started with on there was programming Bitcoin by Jimmy song. Um, and they gave, gives a really good fundamental approach to actually like how everything's working from from the actual fundamental math all the way up to, um, you know, how, how Bitcoin is working. And then from there, you know, moving on to smart contract development. So, um, yeah, I think that anyone that's, that's, you know, willing to, to jump in and actually learn, um, they, they can do it. Yeah. I, I love that you, um, that you're referencing books to learn, uh, programming or just like software development or any, or any like piece of the software world. I think it's, very, very cool. Um, you mentioned that this industry or even this like concept of software engineering in the Web3 space is pretty young just because there hasn't been all this like background and mentors and so forth into the space and we're kind of discovering everything new. How can you tell or how can people tell if someone knows what they're actually talking about? or what they're doing, or if they're just faking it throughout the way. And I know a lot of us are faking it just because we're all learning. Um, but how can you tell the, the fakers from the, the like real, actually, uh, you know, leaders here in the space? Right. Yeah. I think it's definitely something that's, that's hard to tell because everyone's figuring this space out, you know, still. So no one has uh, a firm grasp of what web three and, you know, NFTs and, you know, the trajectory of this space, but, um, definitely looking at, you know, j just, uh, looking at the, the fundamental, uh, software development process, you know, are you writing test cases? Are you testing the, the edges? Are you, you fuzz testing? Are you, um, you know, that, that's, I think mostly what, what I would look for in, in those cases, you know, are, are you just pushing code onto the blockchain and it, it never gets touched by anyone until the, the first client or, um, do you have a rigorous testing process and maybe even some DevOps along the way, are you pushing the test net? You know, and um, actually having a staging process, I think um, that that's one of the things I, I would definitely look for um, is that DevOps process and how you actually uh, release a software cycle. For for listeners that aren't necessarily technical, you mentioned something that I think is really important. That's a big distinction between blockchain development, smart contract development, and like regular Web two, and that's when when you push a smart contract, it is on the blockchain and you can't really change it after you do that, right? It's like, because when you're coding in like Web 2, you, you can push code and be like, oh, it didn't work. I'm going to go change it. And you can just like keep iterating. But when you push a smart contract, 
it's there forever. Is that is that accurate? Right. Yeah, that, that's I guess that's partially accurate. So there, there are ways around that where you can do proxy contracts. So you can have okay. a contract point to another contract and then you can update the logic. But there are some stuff um, for, for more in-depth changes. Um, it's harder to roll out updates based on that. And that's when you'll see like a new version come out, like uh, um, Uniswap v1, v2, v3 is when you need these these larger scale changes. Um, but that is one of the, the big differences that I've seen is it's almost more like uh, like hardware development. When you're doing hardware development, you release a product and you can't update the hardware once it's in the, the hands of the customer, right? You can write code that that you ship to the hardware that can hopefully get around some of the, the rough patches that, that might be in the hands of the customer. But um, so that's, I think, the, the equivalent there where you can have small patches to the hardware to to get around these things. But um, once it's shipped, it's uh, it's shipped. Yeah. Got it. And and for, for listeners as well that don't necessarily understand what a smart contract is, how do you explain a smart contract to someone who doesn't really know blockchain that well? Right. Yeah. So it's it, I would describe a smart contract as a program that runs on, on many computers at the same time. And uh, that, that's essentially and and that the code can't be changed. It's it's permanent logic that is ran by many computers that agree on the same outcome, and it can't be changed. So that's that's the main difference between uh, regular programming and, and software, and then what we now see as smart contracts. Do you have any uh, either funny, famous, or infamous examples of uh, smart contracts going wrong because? They were shipped out and there was something wrong with them actually that caused something funny to happen uh i i don't think i have any examples but there are a lot of cases where um so in, in the early days um in, in our first project at verilink we were uh, linking physical objects to the blockchain um to nfts and we we began to start to run into issues of of data complexity because we started adding um, new different ways to interact with the, the NFTs. So we might add an augmented reality experience. And if you've ever dealt with uh, 3D or like uh, modeling files, you know, there's a lot of different formats. Um, so then we have to handle all these different formats. And um, so there's, there's a lot of complexities because, you know, as we shipped the early NFTs, our code changed a little bit. And then the next round of NFTs were another variation. And all of a sudden, like on our client side, we had to handle all these different variations that that we had shipped out as, as NFTs. So, um, yeah, that, that's one of the things that we saw. But I don't have any any stories of like uh, funny things going wrong or, or anything like that. Well, hopefully they were all tested well then. Um, what? How does <laughs> the progression then of you, you said you know with Uniswap there's version one, two, three, four. How um, when you ship hardware? you kind of like the customer has that hardware and like you said you can upgrade versions and that's fine how does the like support system um or, or just like support and maintenance for uh legacy versions of smart contracts work or do the new versions just completely override them or um yeah I, i'd love to learn more about that right yeah so once you deploy a smart contract so like a version one it's it's permanently on chain so um, and then at some point during a software cycle, you'll probably end of life something. So you just stop support for it and then you move on to a, to a new version and that becomes the, the trusted version, the, the latest version, similar to, um, the Linux distributions, right? They have the, 
the LTS and um, they have these, these releases that, that, you know, have been tested and have um, support all the programs that you need. So it's, it's similar to that where, you know, you'll move on to another version and that's the, the one that's supported. That's the latest one that is promoted by the, the company. Could, um, since it's, it's always out there, like V1 of Uniswap, could someone just build a front end that used V1 of Uniswap since the smart contract is probably still out there? Or is that smart contract somehow like burned, I guess? I believe they could. There are ways to like close down smart contracts. So you can sort of okay. burn them or you can freeze them and um, they're not able to be ran anymore. But I'm not sure if Uniswap did that. I'll have to... That'd be something interesting to, to check out, try to hook it into like a, yeah. a client on there. Yeah, yeah, it'd be like the the Wayback Machine for uh, for, for Web3. <laughs> <laughs> right. You uh, you touched on kind of your first project that you worked on called Verilink. Tell us more about how you got into the, the physical NFT uh, realm. Yeah, so it was my co-founder that, that came to me with the idea at the time. So um, he was working at another startup. They were doing um, sports gaming. They were a sports gaming app, and um, they were looking into NFTs. And one of the things that, that he realized realized was that they were trying to ship merch and NFTs at the same time as um, to the, the players and the, the users that were, that were on their app. And he realized there, there wasn't a great way to tie the NFT to the merch, um, so he, he came to me with this, this idea and, you know, it started off really simple. It was, you know, can we, can we hook, you know, physical items up to, to NFTs? So we actually, we started off with an Arduino prototype where it was just an NFC reader on an Arduino. We would tap it and it would be hooked up to, um, an NFT on the, the blockchain. And then we could interact with the NFT on the blockchain through this Arduino, um, because we, we gave the, the Arduino special privileges within that NFT where it could be transferred just based on, based on NFC tap. Um, so that was the earliest prototype and we thought it was really cool. And um, we were talking with other people in the space and they were really excited about it. So um, then we started using the, these actual blockchain um, NFC cards and we started attaching them to artworks because we saw so much similarity between people who were buying artwork, the, the digital form, and we thought, you know, there's a lot of artists that do physical only work that they want to get into this blockchain world of art. And um, so we were attaching uh, these NFC cards to actual artworks, physical artworks, and then linking them to an NFT on the blockchain. So that was the, the early uh, stages of, of Verilink and, and what we started with. Yeah, that's really cool. Can you kind of explain why we would want a physical object on chain and and kind of like what's the problem that that's solving to put uh, a piece of art um on chain digitally as well right yeah so so what we saw and there's actually a, a lot of other players in this in this space now um when when we previously talked we talked about iyk that they're, they're a big player and they're, they're doing great um they're working with some big projects poap recently um and then there's uh, other ones like ariani so some of these uh, people are using it more for like the uh, the tracking and inventory management side, where you now have this uh, this permanent you know immutable record of the item, where you can track the provenance of it and the history of this item over time. Um, and then on the other side, people see it as more of a a lifestyle brand or like a metaverse product, line, similar to what Artifact and Nike um, are doing, where they're hooking these uh, or attaching these NFC tags to hoodies 
so that their NFT is on the blockchain. So it, it ranges from all the way from like inventory management and tracking systems all the way to uh, just metaverse and lifestyle product lines. And ha- having my hoodie digitally on my avatar. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> what is, what's uh, Poap doing uh, with the physical like NFC NFTs? Yeah, so I haven't looked too much into that project, but I saw that you could... Um, so they were working with IYK and IYK has the, uh, the POAP button. I don't know if yeah. you've seen that where you can, you can tap the button and you, you get a POAP. So people were around these, uh, web three events, people were like badges, and then you can go tap it with your phone and you can get a badge based on this. So, um, from what I thought I, I read about them, they were doing where you could hook up your, um, your ENS name to it. Cool. And you could, you know, tap someone's badge and then it says, I met, you know, whatever dot, dot ETH. Got it. Yep. That makes sense. I just looked at it here and that's exactly what it says is it allows you to securely distribute POAP mint to people you meet. So it's basically just a little bit, it's just a proof that not proof of attendance, but proof that you met, uh, which is pretty cool. I like that. Right. Yeah, exactly. Which we were actually doing, we, we released a similar thing that we called a uh, proof of interaction protocol where it was, you know, you, you tap a tag and you can provably show that you interacted with something. And we, we thought it'd be a really good way to um, show, you know, different life events or experiences for, for example, um, one, one of the things that I was really interested in was, was hiking. You know, if you, if you make it to the top of this, this hike, you know, say, say yeah. Yosemite Falls, there's this NFC tag at the top on the sign and you can tap it with your phone and you get this, um, this NFT badge showing that, Hey, I made it to the top of Yosemite Falls. So, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of cool things you can do with that when you, you tie it to the experiential side in the physical world. Um, and that's what sort of what IYK is doing with, with POAP. So it's really cool to see what they're doing in this space. Sean, that's what, uh, we could do with the wine bottles. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I, I'm. We're really big wine fans, and I I have a bunch of NFC tags here, um, and I want to put them all in my wine bottles. And I don't know what I'm going to do with it yet, but we'll do something with NFTs. <laughs> oh, cool! Yeah, hook them up to NFTs and maybe auction them off on OpenSea or yeah. something like that. Yeah, okay. yeah. I, I want to figure out proof of uh, drink, proof of consumption. I don't know if that's possible, but I think that'd be really <laughs> cool. Especially the, uh, liquid, Everyone taps the... the liquid amount too. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Um, Isaac. So with very so, where is Verilink today? Yeah, so we uh, we entered an accelerator um, at the start of the summer. So we entered. It's called ERA, Entrepreneurs Roundtable Accelerator in New York, Mm -hmm. and it's uh, New York's leading tech accelerator. And during the the time of the accelerator, um, we pivoted to. Uh, what is now Agave, which is an insights engine for for blockchain games. Mm-hmm. And that came from, you know, a lot of conversations and um, just really trying to see where the physical linking would fit into the market. Mm-hmm. And it just seemed like it was it was too early at the time mm-hmm. um, to actually have a, a, an approach in the market that was also easily scalable. Gotcha. Where So what happens... Um... So, so how does that work in the in like maybe the Web three space? Because all the stuff that you've created kind of lives on for forever. So, what happens to the artwork and these tags and, and so forth that you've kind of used on these pieces of art, even if it was in the early stages? Does it kind of all disappear? Does Verilink like no longer, or is it kind of still live on somewhere? 
Yeah, so um, it, it still lives on and we're still supporting it. We have uh, the Verilink app, which is a, it's actually a blockchain wallet that's focused on the physical aspect. So um, people can tap and get NFTs into their mobile wallet. Um, and then they can also tap and view the, the NFT that's on the artwork or, you know, any physical object. Um, so we, we still have the Verilink app out on the App Store. And then we have a, a web client as well, um, if, if you tap these tags. And we're still contributing um, to the, the project because uh, there's kind of a, an ecosystem around physical NFTs. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard of, heard of Kong, Kong.land or um, the, the DAO of Kong. But um, yeah, so they're the ones that, that make the chips that are these uh, cryptographically secure NFC chips that um, they use the, the asymmetric, asymmetric keys. Mm-hmm. And that way, it's, uh, it's essentially a, a blockchain wallet on an NFC tag, and you can easily hook it up to uh, an NFT on the, the blockchain. So we still support everything that's out in the ecosystem. And um, it's a project that both uh, my co-founder Nico and I are, are really fond of. Uh-huh. We, we had a lot of fun and um, enjoyed the development experience. Uh-huh. So we're, uh, we're, we're still supporting it, but like, there's nothing we need to actively support. Gotcha. Um, and then we hope to maybe revive it later on once we see that there's, uh, there's more interest in it. Gotcha. That's really cool. What happens when, so in the web two world, if you stop supporting something, if you stop hosting something or like you have a web app, um, it just kind of dies because it's like no longer. Is that the same thing in the web three space? Right. So that's kind of, uh. I, I guess it depends on the, the the project because like if you stop supporting stuff, the NFTs might still still be around. Um, so, for example, if it's uh, hosted on IPFS or um, one of these decentralized hosting systems, Arweave, um, then you'll still have access to the data and the actual NFT. But um, the difference is that the devs or the community might stop supporting the project, so there might not be like an incentive anymore to stay along with the the project. Um, for example, if, you know, a Web3 game, if they have a lot of digital assets and they sell to people, um, and if the devs quit, you know, they, they stop contributing towards the game or something like that, then most likely people will stop interacting with the, the project. So um, there is still a dependence on the project being supported in, in, in some way mm-hmm. or in some form, but uh, the assets and everything that's on chain does does live on. So there is an opportunity for old pieces of art. Um, like if we fast forward 300 years from now, this could be, uh, we could be in like Da Vinci or whatever kind of famous artist world right now where we've created these projects. These NFTs are uh, like live on into the future, even though the project might be completely kaput within like five years but someone can still find them or you could still trade them or you could buy and sell, et cetera, 300 years from now. Right, exactly. And I think that's what's uh, one of the things that's so appealing about uh, NFTs is, is the permanence. And that's one of the things that the physical artists liked as well. They, it's like a snapshot of their art in digital form that can live on permanently no matter where their, their physical art is. So you went through NYCERA, is that what it's called? Uh, yep. Yeah, that's, cool. That's um, you went in with the Verilink project and you came out with Agave. Talk to us a little bit about what happened in the, in the messy middle there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, so 
there's a, a lot of talking to, um, so ERA is, is a great accelerator. Um, they have such a great mentor network and um, we were able to talk to a lot of different people to understand, you know, where this would be going and what markets we, we could look into. And, and we looked into markets all the way from inventory management to uh, metaverse product lines. And what we saw was that for a lot of these, for the inventory management, um, the, the cost per unit of our tags was too high to actually um, do it in a reasonable economical way. So we started looking more into the metaverse product lines and how we could we could fit into that. And what we saw was that a lot of these these uh, companies that that do NFTs for different brands, um, they they are a whole design studio. So they do the entire process and creation of these NFTs and then the community management. And that's not something that um, as technical founders um, we were interested in or wanted to get into because, you know, we, we just like building tech and the infrastructure and the frameworks um, and the, the community management and then also the design and all that wasn't as as appealing to us. So we decided to um, to pivot and we, we determined to pivot to the, the insights engine for blockchain games, because one we one of the things we were asked when we were talking with a lot of brands was, um, and usually the, the person that we would target in in the uh, the company was the marketers because they saw this as a way to promote their brand through NFTs. Um, but they would always ask for, you know, metrics or analytics on, you know, how they could allocate a budget and have KPIs to show that this user engagement and um, this method was actually improving their brand and um, improving their bottom line, either driving retention or attracting new customers. Um, so we were really interested in, in analytics and how we could prove that out. And then talking with other, other web three consumer experiences, we saw that there, there's not great analytics out there currently for people to understand, um, who's buying into their project, who's uh, contributing to their project when you're determining a project or you're looking to launch, what's the market segmentation? What does the market look like? There's, there's just not that much out there for the actual user experience where there's a lot of analytics tools based on the, the trading activity and the speculation, because um, everyone wants to answer, you know, when moon, right. you know, when will my <laughs> NFT go up? When will it go down? But when there's Lambo. <laughs> right, exactly. And, uh, but they, they, they uh, the, the tools don't help you understand the, the player experience and the actual user engagement and who these users are. So that's what we decided we, we wanted to, to look into further. And then we saw that, um, the biggest impact we could give was in Web3 gaming because uh, in gaming, it's, you know, it's a constant cycle of engagement in order to attract your users and, and keep them playing, right? You have to, if you look at any traditional game, you constantly have to collect analytics and improve the gameplay, whether it's Fortnite or, or Dota or any other game. It's a, it's a constant cycle of, you know, collecting analytics, understanding the user experience and behaviors. And then improving the game based on that, which it doesn't really exist in Web3 gaming at the moment. For sure. Yeah. So it sounds like you kind of started off seeing this trend of or this need for analytics just in Web3 in general. And then you honed in on Web3 gaming. Uh, before we talk about the gaming side of it, what what are some important metrics or analytics that Web3 projects look for? 
because um, I imagine it's it's a lot different than like a SaaS company where all you're focused on is LTV and churn and um, cost of acquisition. What are the important ones for a Web3 project? Right. Yeah. So for the, the Web3 projects, what we're seeing is that um, a lot of them, they'll, they'll look at the the actual volume. One of the, the biggest tools that they have is being able to look at the, the OpenSea volume, but that doesn't tell them the f- full story of where that volume is coming from, because that doesn't actually tell you like the amount of user engagement, right? It tells you how many people are trading it, but it doesn't tell you how many people are enjoying your community. So one of the, the other and, metrics... And volume, just so I'm clear, volume would be like amount of people or amount of money flowing into an NFT project, right? Right, exactly. So if you look on OpenSea, um, yeah, it's the amount of trade, uh, the amount in NFTs that was traded per day, whether the the uh, the actual crypto value in ETH or Matic or um, something like that. So, yeah, that's one of the, the tools that they look at, but it doesn't tell them the whole user journey, right? Like what what drove that that volume? Um, and so some of the other things that they might look at is Discord activity. Um, are people really engaged? Twitter activity. So a, a lot of off-chain stuff. Um, is what they'll look to because a lot of these communities are, are driven by the the off-chain events, you know, Twitter posts or Discord posts or events, um, stuff like that. So that's why we look towards Web3 games because we saw a lot of this um, activity can be um, analyzed in the form of this online gaming, the contracts, the gaming contracts that they're interacting with. You know, how many people played this game and interacted with this contract that's for example, an Axie Infinity starts a battle or something like that. You know, once we can we can view that, it's it's all on chain. So that that way we can see how many people started a battle and who these people were, what they're doing with other games. Um, and from there we can we can have a better picture and understanding of the user behavior. Um, to to kind of shed some light on what gaming and web three means, maybe we can use Axie Infinity as as an example. Could you kind of walk us through what a Web3 game is and why it's different than a non-Web3 game? Right. So the, the main difference in a Web3 game is that the digital assets and the token that you use, um, it's all on the blockchain. It's using blockchain as the rails for that, that economy. So if you look at mobile gaming is a great example of this. If you look at a lot of mobile games, you know, for example, like Clash of Clans or something like that, you, you buy gems in the game, right? So they already have these these economies within the game. But the different the, the difference here is that on Web3, these economies are on the blockchain. So, so that means that, you know, you can trade assets between different players, whereas, um, you know, you, you can't do that in, in normal, like Clash of Clans games. You buy gems, it's your gems. And then you also, once you exchange USD for gems, you can't convert it back, right? So this is a way for, for you to be able to convert currencies around and have an actual flow of, of money in and out of the system. And also it creates an entire micro economy for the game that's on the blockchain. So that's, that's the big difference. And I think once we move away from, um, sort of the term, you know, web three gaming, where it's just, you know, a normal game that people have fun and enjoy, but in the background, it's running on the blockchain. I think that's, that's the goal and what everyone's looking to move towards is not, um, promoting it as a web three game, but just as a game, but, everything's on the blockchain, you know, in terms of the economy and the transactions. Yep. That makes sense. Can you explain a little bit about what Axie Infinity is? Maybe the, um, some of the base like mechanics of the game and, and um, 
you know, what's involved in the Web3 side if it's if there's more than just an economy in there? Right. Yeah. So so the, the basic idea behind Axie Infinity is that you'll get these characters, you'll be able to breed these characters and create new characters. And all these characters are represented as NFTs on the blockchain. And then you can level them up and you can battle with um, with other players in the game. And then during this time, you get experience and in, in-game items. Um, so that, that's the general idea behind the, the game. Um, and yeah, it's, it's all in, in browser. Got it. And so, okay, so Axie Infinity, Infinity has you know tons of users, and then you guys as Agave are building an analytics engine for games like that. What, what specifically um, does that look like, or, or where are you guys at with that? Yeah, so we're, we're still um, more in the early stages, and we're, we're actually launching, uh, the end of this month is when we're launching our beta. But what, what we're doing is we're analyzing the user profiles and the interactions with this game. So um, there's a lot of external activity that happens um, on the blockchain. For example, people are buying into the project, they're selling out of the project, and then they're also renting um, their items in these projects. So they might rent an an Axie Infinity character to another player so that they can use it for you know a certain amount of time. Um, and then so th- there's this entire economy of, of people doing all these things, whether it's renting, trading, staking. Um, and the, the idea is to give an analysis of the um, activity that's happening, whether it's you know any of the ones I just listed, and then also what kind of users are, are doing this and um, what other games are they playing. So have an idea of the market segmentation because um, the the interesting thing is, and, and one of the demos that, that we launched was a recommendation system. So just like uh, in, in the way that Netflix, you know, when, when you watch content um, on Netflix, they'll recommend other content based on what you watched. So that's a recommender algorithm. We can do the same thing on the blockchain. So we can see the user address and we can see the other games that they interacted with, the communities that they're in. Um, and we can build a picture of the content that they might enjoy um, and what kind of a user are they, what genres are they into, and um, what kind of activity you can expect from them in the future. So with, uh, with what Agave does for analytics here, uh, specifically in your space when you're focusing around gaming, how does your business model change uh, from if this was Web 2 based versus Web 3? Do you have just one set of customers or do you have potentially multiple? Because the analytics that you can derive are really almost infinite here. Right. Yeah, that's that's one of the things that, that we've seen, especially with the amount of um, different entities that are in the, the gaming space. So you have the, the B2C type of analytics where um, the people playing the game, they want to know, you know how many people are playing the game, you know, Will my NFT go up? Will it go down? You know, what's the most popular items in the game? So you have the, the B2C analytics where, you know, the common players want to see what's going on in the game and understand that. And then you have the, the B2B analytics where obviously the game studio, they want to understand the player behavior mm-hmm. and the experience and also the entire microeconomy and the activity within that. So um, you have that version of analytics that um, is for the game studio. And then also there are uh, this new entity on in Web3 Gaming, which is the guilds, which the guilds are um, a group of people, they're a DAO that will invest in these gaming assets. 
Mm-hmm. So, so they'll go and they'll buy a whole series of Axie Infinity, Axie Infinity characters. And um, then they'll rent them out to other players in the game um, in order for them to experience it. So there's a lot of different versions of analytics that, that could be um, created for these different target audiences. And I think that the one core focus is that like when you're a startup, you really have to segment the market and provide a niche service that will uh, provide value value and the exact value that someone wants for for that target audience. Because we could build a generic tool that you know might have some value to all of them, but um, it might not be as appealing in that case. So what we really want to do is you know find the the niche target that that we think we can provide the most value to, which in this case is game studios, mm-hmm. um, and build analytics specifically for them. Very cool. Tell us about your business model. How do you make money? Right. Yeah. So the, the idea is it's a normal SaaS business model. So um, we have a dashboard and it's a subscription, you know, every month um, that they'll pay for it. And we have both monthly and then daily statistics that based on the gameplay that, that will update on the dashboard. Um, and then on the side of that, there's a lot of um, other things that the the, uh, the game might be interested in, whether it's a competitive analysis or um, looking into a specific transaction that's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that case, we offer, we offer custom reports. And that's a way for us to also learn what um, other things that these, these games might want, because it's, it's always a learning process when you're, you're working with these, these customers and uh, running a startup, because you, you want to know what you, know, you can build that will provide the most value and help these people be successful at what they do because mm-hmm. you know um that that's that's the reason that's the reason you're there so that's a way for us to kind of get new information um with these custom reports where they'll say yeah i'm really interested in uh, maybe looking more into to this detail and then we'll, we'll do a custom report based on that see if we can roll it out into a tool for the dashboard when you're describing your business model you said they will pay for it who, who is they specifically who's like your your main target customer that you're serving yeah, our target customer is is the game studio, specifically the game designers within the studio, okay. because they're the ones that that manage all the game mechanics and um, the the behavior in the game. So, yeah. got it. And so, to scale, do you need to to like part? Do you need all of those game studios to be a customer, or is there a lot of this data are like publicly available on the blockchain, so you can? almost like pre-build analytics for them and and basically like you can just tease them their own analytics and say like well if you want more you have to pay us <laughs> <laughs> right yeah that's a that's actually our go-to-market strategy is we'll, we'll build a report based on um, the on-chain activity that we see and we'll go to these these game studios and we'll say hey look look at how much information we have about your game that you know you might not even know so if, if you approach someone and you can show them that you know their game better than they do, then yeah. um, it, it's a it's a pretty easy sell after that, and um, and also show them like the value that you can provide to them. I, I think is um, not only showing them that you know you see all this data about the game, but also providing like, hey, here's a su- suggestion and an actionable insight based on that data um, to improve your game. Yeah, I love that. I think that's so smart. I wonder what. Thomas and I are going to start thinking about where else that applies other than games with uh, with Web three because it, it's such a like you said an easy sale right you just automatically right. prove your value. Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of opportunity there, especially because 
Um, right now, it seems like all of the analytics on the blockchain, they just display the data. So if you go to like Etherscan, it displays the data. If you go to, um, you know, Dapp Radar, it displays the data, but it doesn't give an interpretation of that data. And um, that that's what we're really looking to build as well. So I think there's a lot of potential in that. And um, maybe an analogy to that would be like uh, Instagram, right? So they're, they're a great example of a service that, you know, based on your, your likes and your views and all that, they constantly improve your, your feed. Um, so what, what we kind of see right now on the blockchain is that um, the only data you have is, you know, user address X interacted with contract Y. And that would be, for example, like if Instagram only knew that user ID, you know, X liked picture Y, right? Which doesn't tell them much, but if they see that um, user Isaac, you know, liked a surfing video, then they start to get an idea of like who this person is, what content can I start feeding to them? Maybe what kind of products can I start marketing to them through my platform? And the, the same thing kind of goes for the blockchain where, you know, if, if you were to actually understand that um, this interaction with the contract, it represented um, starting a battle in Axie Infinity, then you can understand that, you know, they're, they're a player that maybe they like these, these RPG experiences um, and here's other things that they might be into. So that, that's sort of the idea is a, a layer on top of the data, a layer of insights on top of the data. This is really cool that you're basically using public data, manipu not manipulating it, but analyzing it in a way that's useful for these studios or you know anybody else for that matter. At the same time though, because this is all public, that means that anybody can do this. So how do you maintain your competitive advantage or uh, what do you need to do? Because eventually like anybody can do this, including the, the, the you know, the game studio themselves. Um, so yeah, talk to us a little bit about that. Right. Yeah, exactly. So that, that's one of the, the things that we constantly talk about is, you know, how do we build that moat? Um, and what we've seen is, I mean, one in the meantime, right now, uh, all, all these web three builders, they're really focused on their, their product and just shipping their product. And they don't really have enough time or capacity in order to build these analytics teams and, and um, platforms that they would like to. So, you know, it's um, so in, in the meantime, in the, the short term, you know, we can still sell them the ability to access this, this public data. But in the long term, it's the actual labeling of the data that we see as as our moat, um, because we'll have all this internal system where we have all these labels of what these interactions mean, kind of just like the Instagram example where um, the, the interaction with the contract, we know exactly what that means in terms of um, the, the user and the, the actual action that they did. Um, and that, that's what we're, we're trying to build up. And also we're looking to combine off-chain data. So we might uh, combine Discord data, you know, the user engagement within the Discord and then you know, if we see a spike of engagement in the Discord and then we see that the volume went up or, you know, users were interacting with this contract more or users went to another project after that, then we can um, start to actually attribute the, the off-chain data to the, the on-chain data. I see. So basically, like even though this, this data is public and you can see Wallet X interacted with Smart Contract Y, that's all you know. You don't really know much information about it necessarily. And so what you guys are doing is internally you're tagging um, you know, Smart Contract Y with Axie Infinity or um, 
you know, avatar from this game or something. And so internally you're kind of building this, this knowledge that, um, that hopefully you guys will have a competitive advantage over. Right. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. And I think a similar similarity to that would be like, um, autonomous driving. So there's all this footage of people driving online, right. And, um, it, it's not as useful to these, these autonomous vehicle developers or these machine learner learning, uh, engineers, because they, they need labeled data. They need to know that the speed, you know, location, you know, all these other factors that, um, are labeled within these frames, um, within each, each image of this, this video. So the, the actual data, although there's a lot of data out there for driving, um, there's actually very few data points that are, that are valuable, only the, the labeled ones. So that's kind of, kind of how we see it. So funny how almost, uh, so your competitive advantages are essentially creating your own proprietary data set that you can leverage against the public data. Um, which is pretty cool. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So what's the, the grand vision for Agave? If, if you could see ahead five years um, and you've kind of met your vision and you succeeded, what does the world look like? Yeah. So the, uh, the idea for, for Agave is to have something as easy to set up as Google Analytics. So I don't know if you've ever used Google Analytics before, but when you're setting up a web page and you want to add Google Analytics in, you just add the tag. Right. You just, you know, one line of code, you add the tag. And then if you want to add, you know, custom interactions or events that you track, um, you might add a button press, for example. And um, then you say what that button press is. You label it with within the, the analytics tool. And then Google Analytics builds your whole dashboard with your your events, you know, the activity on your your platform. Um, that's sort of the idea where someone, you know, develops a smart contract framework or project and they you know, deploy it on, on a blockchain and then they just point these smart contracts and their ABI into Agave. And from there, you know, we, we know, you know, that the functions that are being called, we can parse the transactions and then we can build them an entire dashboard based on that. Love it. What, um, what web three projects are you kind of eyeing right now? Are there are some, some projects or communities that are getting you excited right now? Yeah, so one of the ones that I'm really excited about, and uh, disclaimer, I'm, I'm a part of it, and you know I've contributed to the project is is Kong. Um, so it's it's Kong land, and they're uh, the ones that that we're working with to make the NFC chips that link the the physical items to the digital. Um, and they've uh, they've been doing a lot of great work recently, and have been working with a lot of large projects. One of the most recent ones is Azuki. I don't know if you've ever heard of Azuki. They're, they're a pretty large NFT project that, um, that, uh, just, uh, they launched a physical NFT skateboard with Kong. So I for, for their this. community. Yeah. So, so that, like, that's like a, a 24 karat gold skateboard or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the one. So, so Kong's now working with them and they're launching that project and creating a whole standard of what they're calling PBTs or physical back tokens. Um, mm. Yeah, so those are those are some really interesting projects. The other one um, I would say is the the Graph Protocol, which I'm a huge fan of. I, um, it's a, it's another analytics tool. Um, I don't know if you've you've looked into it before, but um, it has it has a different use case because it's a decentralized protocol. Um, but it's it's a great project. And then um, I would say the other one's Chainlink. 
Mm-hmm. Love chain link. Yeah, they're they're doing great work. Yeah, I went to uh, I went to SmartCon um, a few weeks ago, and there was a lot of very smart people there. <laughs> oh, cool! Yeah, their uh, the, their team is is amazing, and they they have some some great tutorials on there as well for smart contract development, and um, just a great community. Yeah, do you guys utilize Chainlink right now, or, or maybe in the future you'll be able to you know pull in some oracles for some off chain data? Uh, we we did before we we uh for for the. The physical NFTs we were, were using Chainlink. Um, one of the things that, that we were thinking of using Chainlink was for uh, like claiming the NFT conditionally um, based mm-hmm. on off-chain events. And then the other was uh, we were actually uh, allowing payments for, for items. So, for example, you could list your, your physical item. You could put a price and a listing to it, and then someone could tap it and purchase it. Um, and then we would use a Chainlink Oracle to actually uh, convert that to USD. So it'd be the the Matic equivalent of USD. So you could still pay in like your local currency um, and there wouldn't be fluctuations, but uh, you could trade the the NFT and the item at the the same time. That's awesome. Um, Cool. Well, Thomas, do you have any last minute questions here? Good. Great. Well, Isaac, if anyone listening wants to learn more about you or Agave, where do they go? Yeah, they can jump on our our Twitter. So um, it's agave.gg. Um, or underscore GG on Twitter. And then I'm Isaac underscore Dubuque on Twitter. So um, love to chat more if you're interested in what we're building, either the, the physical NFTs or what we're building now with the uh, Insights Engine for, for blockchain games. And um, yeah, really excited because the, the community is always so great in Web3. Everyone's willing, so willing to help each other out and we're all just building in this space. So it's, it's really cool to be a part of it. Yep. And you said the URL is agave.gg. Uh, yeah, the, the URL, which I'm not sure if I can, is there a chat here? I, I can send it to you after, but it's agave.gg. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate it. It was nice talking again. Yeah. Thank you so much, Sean and Thomas, for your time. And really appreciate you having me on here and, and talking with me.